Well, I would invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. We introduced uh, a few uh, weeks ago, having a week off with uh, Dave and them coming. I spoke with uh, Dave again yesterday. They're doing well, and uh, they were encouraged by uh, their visit, and it was surely a blessing uh, to... uh, to see them. <clears throat> we introduce this section of the book that stretches all the way from chapter 12 in verse 1 all the way to chapter 15 in verse 4. It was my intention a few weeks ago to read that section, and uh, we didn't get to do that. I intended again today to read that section, and last night, um, hopefully wisely, uh, decided not to do that because there's just not not the time and my intention at that point was to preach all the way through the end of verse uh, uh, verse 17 of chapter 12 um, under four headings and uh, but at this point I think we'll only attempt to even do two uh, if we can get done with that but the, the 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 grand heading for this whole section this whole section of scripture is what I'm calling the battle for the cosmos. Um, I think Jeff and I were talking yesterday, jokingly, he said something about Carl Sagan, and uh, in truth, the cosmos is not all there is, all there was, and all there ever will be. Uh, Christ, though, is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and the battle for the cosmos, uh, we will find in the end, uh, will not be much of a battle at all when viewed from heaven's perspective, because Christ himself is triumphant over all of his enemies with the mere word of his mouth. But under that that general banner, the battle of the cosmos, at the conclusion of which a vision is given into the sanctuary, the presence of God. If you look over in chapter 15 and verses 5 through 8, there is a vision that is given of, given of the sanctuary, a vision peering into the very presence of God, the sanctuary there, not pointing to the whole of the temple complex, but the sanctuary, a word that's more limited to the, the tabernacle section itself, the holy place and the most holy place, and we're peering into the sanctuary, and we're peering into that room where the veil has been torn, and we have been given access to see there in that place where the Ark of the Covenant would be, as it was mentioned earlier in chapter 11 and verse 19, God's temple in heaven is open, the Ark of the Covenant is seen within the temple, but here in chapter 15 and verse 5, John says, I looked and the sanctuary... And the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open, and out of the sanctuary came seven angels with seven plagues. John sees coming forth in sweeping power the forces of heaven to unleash God's final verdict on the rebellious world. It made me think of that uh, picture in the Avengers, if you've seen that latest superhero movie. You may not be a superhero kind of a person or whatever, but there's this picture where the heavens open up and the enemy comes through, sweeping into the world to wreak great havoc 
Well, this is no superhero movie, and it's not simply the heavens itself or the sky. It's, it's, it's penetrating into the very recesses of whatever, wherever that, that, that realm is, but, but coming from the presence of God, sweeping in with great power, and no one to rescue, no one to save, no one to deliver the world from the power of God, are these great forces of heaven unleashed to bring God's final verdict on the rebellious world. And that verdict is found in the seven bowls with the final plagues. In the pouring out of these bowls, the wrath of God will be complete. The great prostitute, the nations of the rebellious world, and all their seductions set forth as Babylon, and upon which she rides, that beast, will be judged. Babylon, the center of the nations, will fall. Heaven will rejoice. Christ will slay the nations. The false trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire. And all the dead will be judged. And those whose names who are not found written in the Lamb's book of life will join them there forever and ever where the smoke rises, where the worm doesn't die and the fire isn't quenched. Then will come. Then will come the time for the joy of of the church to be fulfilled. The new heaven and earth will be seen along with the new Jerusalem. God will be found in the midst of His people, the holy city. The water of life will freely flow. Full access to the tree of life will be restored. No longer will access be denied. We will see His face, the face for which we have longed. His name will forever be upon us and there will be no more night for the Lord God will be our light and we will reign forever and ever and ever. That's what Glenn sees today. That's what he sees. But for now, we must continue to walk through this realm that we often call the valley of the shadow of death. For there is in this world raging all around us a battle, the outcome of which is sure, but it is a battle nonetheless. And we might even say it is the battle. It is the battle of of all battles. It is a battle for the cosmos itself. Who will be ruler over all? It is, we might say, in our day and age, a winner-takes-all kind of a battle. There will be no sharing of space on the throne. It is into the very heart, or as we mentioned last time, to the very roots of this battle that our attention is drawn today in our text. If you ever ask the question, why? You ever ask that question? Things happen in your life and you ask the question, why? You have been seeking answers to questions that are answered in our text today. Why loss? Why sorrow? Why pain? Why sickness? Why suffering? Why disease? Why hurting? Why joblessness? Why homelessness? Why orphans? Why drugs and drunkenness? Why immorality? Why greed? Why murder? Why theft? 
Why adultery? Why broken homes? Why divorce? Why pornography? Why crime? Why folly? Why abuse? Why abortion? Why rape? Why incest? Why homosexuality? Why apostasy? Why falsehood? Why hatred? Why miscarriages? Why old age? Why grief? Why decay? Why lies? Why opposition? Why sweat? Why cheating? Why trickery? Why corruption? Why strife? Why idolatry? Why so much dissension? Why famine? Nakedness? Peril? Why war? Why cancer? Why death? Why false teachers? Why compromise? Why worldliness? Why materialism? Why false religion? Why beggars? Why corrupt politicians? Why tears? Somewhere I have to stop. Or I'll just ask the question, why? Forever. I didn't even count those up. But that took me about five minutes to make that list. I wonder what would happen if I spent an hour. Why? 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 Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, why? Because in this world we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. John Eady, a great Greek scholar from years ago, said of this text that to rouse up the Christian soldiery, the apostle brings out into bold relief the terrible foes which they are summoned to encounter. As to their position, they are, they are no junior officers, but they are foes of mighty rank, the nobility and the chieftains of the fallen spirit world. As to their office... Their domain is this darkness in which they exercise imperial sway. As to their essence, they are not encumbered with animal frame, but are spirits. And as to their character, they are evil. Their appetite for evil only exceeds their capacity for producing it. 
It is these spiritual realities or forces that lie behind our great questions of why in this world. All these questions of why plague the church as she moves forward in her journey toward that glorious day when all will be made new. Dennis Johnson, in his work, The Triumph of the Lamb, speaks about the church on this journey. He says, The suffering and tempted church is confronted with conundrums. I like that word. Conundrums. Enigmas. Mysteries. As we seek explanations of our experience and of the ways of our God and the world. Why must the martyrs wait for vindication? Why must the church militant endure social ostracism, economic sanctions, and imprisonment? Why do the congregations that are in Jesus' hand exhibit such a mixture of truth and error, purity and compromise, love and indifference? Why do wars, fires, and famine rage if the Prince of Peace has indeed taken His throne and has taken in hand God's plan of the ages to carry it out until the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ? Explanations that focus on human combatants are true enough at one level. But what lies behind the hostility of human enemies? What about societal structures and systems of thought and behind human societies, religions and philosophies? Is there a cause of the cosmic conflict that lies behind the various proximate or near causes? Like the peeling of an onion... The unfolding of John's vision leads us layer by layer, deep, layer by layer, deeper into the mystery of God, which is to be completed with the seventh trumpet when it sounds. To help us with making our way through these conundrums, to use Johnson's term, these puzzles of life that so often leave us asking why, I want us to turn our gaze to the Word of God. Recall, as we have heard from Richard Bauckham before, that, quote, John's work is a prophetic apocalypse in that it communicates a disclosure of a transcendent perspective on this world. We're getting, in this book, God's view of things. We have enough of our view of things. We have enough of man's view of things about why there is evil in the world and what to do about it. If there was ever a time that we needed God-sized view of life, it would be now. This God-sized view of the battle for the cosmos finds us looking in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 through 15, verse 4. Our text that we observed a few weeks ago finds itself wrapping scenes of warfare and worship around centralizing text calling for the church to wait in a posture of endurance as she entrusts herself to her faithful creator in doing what is right. These two sections that wrap themselves around the the scenes of warfare and worship are found in chapter 12 verse 1 through 14.5. And 14.6 through 15.4, respectively. Those are the two big sections within this larger section. Pulling the two sections together, each 
within themselves and together as a whole, are two, what I'm going to call, centralizing texts. We saw them a few weeks ago. I want you to see them again. And these centralizing texts call the churches to endure. Look with me in chapter 13, in verse 9. This is a centralizing text for the first section. The first section, 12.1 through 14.5, scenes of warfare and scenes of worship are pulled together by this centralizing text in Revelation 13.9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Jesus is saying here to the churches, if the world comes flashing swords at you, and rattling swords, and threatening imprisonment and death, it may very well be that to imprisonment and death, you must go. If it wasn't so serious, it might seem almost like a little ditty. Like, a hunting we will go, a hunting we will go, to the sword we will go, to captivity we will go. And it just kind of rolls. But it's not a little ditty. It's not a little fable. It's not a little story for a child to entertain them. It is a, it is a statement made to the church to say, when the sword comes, it may penetrate your own soul. And you may not be spared. So here is a call for the endurance of the saints. And that centralizes this whole idea of the warfare going on around it. And the worship that is held out at the end for the faithful saint, for the one who endures to the end, will be what? Will be saved. And then in 14, verses 12 through 13, we read this. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. And this, this, this little encouragement moves the church forward in the midst of the warfare around her and the judgment that is to come and the worship that falls out in chapter 15 and verses 2 through 4 when they surround the throne one day and they sing the song of Moses and they sing the song of the Lamb. You, 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 remember, you remember here they, they sing the song of Moses like the people of Israel did when they're delivered from the Exodus in Egypt. And they're saved from Pharaoh and his army. And they sing the song of the Lamb. Why? Because he is the greater Moses. He is the, he is the greater deliverer, if you will, that brings his people not just to the earthly edge of Canaan, but brings them all the way in to the heavenly place in the presence of God himself. Each text, surrounded by this text, these text, texts of, of warfare and these texts of worship, these texts centralize and, 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 and hone, if you will, our thoughts and, and, and perk our ears and, 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 and make them listen a little closer in the midst of the suffering and make them think a little more uh, patiently with the picture of worship to come by, by putting on, if you will, our spiritual ears that we might be able to truly hear the word of Christ. Thus the call to wait to endure and be patient is most necessary 
due to the seeming unending warfare all around and the joy that is set before the troubled saints, it is a picture of a conquering multitude in the worship of God and of their captain, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In the midst of warfare, with the promise of worship, we are called to wait. So today it's our intention to at least initiate a closer examination of our first section calling for endurance from 12.1 to 14.5. Obviously we're not going to cover all that in the few moments that we have left. We're just going to get our toes on the edge of the water. In this first section of warfare and waiting with the glorious promise of worship at the end, we are moved through the section in the sweeping acts each which is charged with another movement in the great spiritual battle between the church and the spiritual forces of evil in the present world. If you're, if you're taking notes, let me just kind of lay out uh, this, this, uh, the, the, the sweep of the drama. And make a mental note if you don't have some paper there. There are three acts stretching from 12.1 to 14.5. There are three acts. There's one aside. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then there's a glorious conclusion. Act 1 is found in chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. That's what was read for us a few moments ago by Jeff. Act number 1, it's the battle with the dragon. Or the great dragon. Or the great red dragon. Act number 2 moves us to chapter 13, verses 1 to 8. Chapter 13, verses 1 to 8. And this is the battle with the beast. The battle with the beast. This is the beast that receives the mortal wound but is raised, mimicking and copying Christ in his death and resurrection. But he is a false Christ. So 12, 1 to 17, the battle with the dragon. Act 2, 13, 1 to 8, the battle with the beast. Then we have in verses 9 to 10 that we just read, chapter 13, verses 9 to 10, this, this, this little section of encouragement for endurance. I, I call this an aside. You have those moments in the Shakespeare movies where, you know, the, the actor is doing all this and then he pulls off to the side to speak a special little word to the audience. Or maybe it's like an interlude or a parenthesis. And, and it is a word of exhortation given in the midst of a long, dramatic battle. It, in a sense, it's like a breath. And then you're going to go back down again. You know what it's like, you know, when you're swimming underwater for a long time, you just don't think you can get back up to the top. And you finally get to the top and you pull your head out of the water and you breathe. You're like, oh, I'm... I made it. You ever done that? You ever got down too far deep in the pool and you wondered if you were going to get back up to the top? I bet you made it. You know how I know? Kind of smart like that because you're here. All right. So you made it. All right. And, and it's amazing how you can hold it just a little bit longer when you know you have to because if you open your mouth two inches short, no, it's not good. Just not good. Okay. So, so we breathe. It's all oh, this, this breath. Oh, yes. A little bit of relief. But then it's right back down into the depth of it all. Because in 13, 11 through 18, we are plunged into Act 3, the battle with the false prophet. Or sometimes he's called the second beast. This is the beast we often hear about. with The mark of the beast and the 666 and all this kind of stuff. And we're not going to talk much about him today at all. But we'll save him for later on. So if you didn't bring your secret decoder box, you can bring that here in a few weeks, and we'll tell you how to decode that, that name really well, and uh, we'll write a book and get a TV show, and we'll be famous. And I'm, I'm just kidding. Don't you just get exhausted sometimes when you hear that stuff? I just get exhausted when I hear that. As if the Bible's a puzzle. It's not a puzzle. 
It's not a math book. There's glory here to be seen. It can't be seen with a calculator. So 12, 1 to 17, the battle with the dragon. 13, 1 to 8, the battle with the beast. The little interlude or the parenthesis, the aside, the word of encouragement in 13, 9 to 10. And then the battle with the false prophet and the second beast in 13, 11 to 18. And then the conclusion to the drama in chapter 14, 1 to 5, this picture, a glorious picture. We're back to the 144,000 again. The, that, 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 that symbolic picture of the complete summation of the people of God, the redeemed. That's the countless multitude uh, back in chapter 7 that is standing before the throne of God, worshiping God, worshiping the lamb worshiping the spirit rejoicing in the triumph of redemption now it is to the first act the battle with the great dragon that we want to put our primary focus on this lord's day and lord willing next week as well turn again revelation chapter 12 you've probably been there faithfully um, for a long time now as i've been doing other things Uh, verses 1 to 17 in chapter 12 it was already read for us so we won't go back and read the whole of the text We'll simply read the portions that we get to today. Our act, this first act, falls out into four fluid scenes, each moving into and depending intimately upon the former. So one scene informs the next, gets us ready for the next, and the next scene depends intimately on the one that we've just gone out of. So don't chop them up, we're simply dividing them for the purpose of moving through the story. Let me give you the four scenes, and then we'll come back and talk about each a little bit, in particular the first two. Scene number one. Scene number one. If I've got you lost in the outline at this point, just scratch everything else and just start with this. Number one, all right? Verses one to three. The players in the drama. The players in the drama. Number two, verses four to six. The plot. And the plot, as they say, thickens. It's quite a drama that we need to see. That's verses 4 to 6. Number 3, verses 7 to 12, that is the proclamation. There's a proclamation made in the heavens that gives us great understanding to the whole of the story. And then finally, in verses 13 through 17, the pursuit. The pursuit. The players, the plot, the proclamation, and the pursuit. Let us look at who is in this drama. Let us begin with scene one, the players. Chapter 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, and was crying out of birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. Wow. This is not a movie. This is not Hollywood. Uh, This is not The Lord of the Rings or any kind of other uh, fictitious, mystical movie or story that you might come up with. The players are identified particularly in this passage as signs in heaven. We're in heaven. There are signs that are given in heaven. There is a great sign, and there is another sign. Not a great one. Another one. First, the great sign. The great sign is the woman in heaven. 
I want you to think of me about this woman. Think about her appearance. She is clothed with the sun. The moon is at her feet. And that's weird. <laughs> There's a crown on her head with 12 stars. Think about her condition. She's with child. She's pregnant. She's vulnerable. She's in a moment of weakness. Think about her situation. She is in pain. She is in agony. She is in the process of delivering this baby. Now, I've been there for five of those. And my hat is always off to my wife on this particular issue. Because if it was up to me, we would have adopted everybody. Because that just never would have happened with, with me. I don't know how she got through that. That was amazing. James Hamilton, in his sermon on this particular text, gave this very interesting picture. He was talking about how is all this to happen. The baby has grown to a size that is just, by all practical observation, too big. <laughs> too big to get out. How is this going to happen? But by the miracle and the wonder-working power of God in creating the woman's body, that baby comes. And it's the most amazing thing I've ever seen in this world. It really is. Wouldn't have missed it for a moment. Wouldn't have ever done it, but wouldn't have missed it for a moment. Her identity? Not yet. Talk about that in a minute. But that's what we want to know. Who is that woman? All right, That's one big woman, clothed with the sun. Standing on the moon, 12 stars around her head, and she's given birth to a baby. I mean, what a picture. What must John have thought? No wonder Ezekiel, when he sees the glory of God, the wheels within the wheels in Revelation, he just falls. <laughs> no wonder John, before Jesus, falls down like a dead man. And when he sees this, he must just be overwhelmed. The second actor. Another sign, a lesser sign. But he's called the great red dragon. He is described with seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems on his seven heads. His seven heads represent his wisdom. He has a picture of completeness with his wisdom. His horns, horns represent in apocalyptic imagery his power. And his diadems, his regal authority. But this is just a time we want to introduce the players. These two great signs. This pregnant, expectant, delivering woman. And this other sign, a great red dragon full of wisdom, power, and authority. But we'll see in a moment. His wisdom, power, and authority not only is counterfeit but it's short-lived. This takes us to scene two. And this is the plot. This is where the plot truly thickens. It's an amazing picture. Look in verse four. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give 
birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she will be nourished for 1260 days. What is the story? And why? Why is this being told? We are not long into unfolding the plot before we observe it is a plot filled with rebellion and filled with evil. I want you to notice three characteristics about the plot. Number one, I want you to notice this is a plot that is filled with rebellion. In verse 4, the dragon with his powerful tail leads a rebellion in the heavens. Remember, we're still in the heavens. And he leads a rebellion in the heavens, leading to a third of the stars. Angelic hosts. To side with him and he casts them to the earth where they will wreak havoc on all who name the name of Christ. It is a plot full of rebellion. It starts with rebellion. This tail, this, this wicked tail of the serpent stealing, knocking, taking these stars out of heaven, their rightful place, and cast them down to the earth. This, this can't be literal stars. You can't cast a star down to you, you cast one star down to the earth, and what happens? There's no more what? There's no more earth. This is this is this is imagery. This is again a symbolic, it's apocalyptic type imagery. Stars representing these heavenly bodies, often associated in this type of literature as angelic figures. This is a picture of the satanic rebellion of heaven itself. And he leads them and takes them and casts them to the earth. It is a picture of rebellion. But secondly, I want you to notice this plot is filled with images of readiness. There is a sense of anticipation in the air as the woman prepares to give birth to the child. She, in her weakness and travail, will be absolutely, there's no way she can be any match for the great red dragon. I mean, it's, 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 it's a total contrast in powers. He is full of wisdom and power and authority, and she is a pregnant woman giving birth. Remember the, the passage in the Gospels that talks about, pray, pray that, that, that in the end, when, when you have to flee from, from the, the coming armies, pray that it not be in the winter. Why? Because that would be hard. Pray that it not be on a Sabbath, because that's the day that everything's closed. And Jesus says how hard it's going to be for pregnant women in that day. I mean, not to be comical, but you, you see the imagery. She's trying to move, she's trying to run. It's hard to get out of a chair. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> you want me to go Where? These are all my good reasons and my list of reasons on why I'm not going to be the... Well, I can't be anyway. So, you understand the point. He is ready. The dragon. He's standing before the woman. If a doctor, this would be a scene of hope. But he is not a doctor. He is a devil. And it is a scene of despair and certain destruction. His purpose is not to deliver, but specifically, it says in the text, he seeks to devour it, the baby. 
The ultimate destruction of the child is his sole and savory purpose. But why? Well, think with me for just a moment. The text says that this child, and the dragon knows it, is the sole obstacle to all that he longs for. The dragon longs for dominion over the whole world. But the child is the one, hear this, is the one in verse 5 who is to rule all the nations with a what? With a rod of iron. And the dragon knows that there's no room on the throne but for only one king. The child becomes the sole obstacle to the devil's purposes. He wants the throne. He wants the rule. Notice the, the, the plot is not only characterized by rebellious and readiness, the, the plot quickly moves to the picture of rescue. Though ready, the dragon's plans are frustrated in the rescue of the child and the fleeing of the woman. First, the child is caught up to God, to his throne. And the woman escapes, fleeing into the wilderness. The devil must have sat there, or the dragon, I'm giving my, my point away here just a moment, the, the dragon must have thought, where'd he go? I had him! He was right there! He was being delivered right into my hands! And boom, he's rescued by God. And he's caught up. And then the woman, in her weakness, flees to a place prepared by God to be nourished for 1,260 days. That is quite a story. So the question is, in the few moments that we have, what does it mean? <laughs> all right, what, what is all that? All right. Well, we need to say three things very quickly. We need to speak of identification. We need to speak of signification. And we need to speak of application. Let's speak first of identification. This is the answer to the question, who are these people? Or what are these creatures? We're going to move rather quickly here, but we want to move from the simplest to the most difficult. I thought that was an easy way for me to start. Hopefully it'll be easy for you to track there. First, let's start with the great red dragon. All right? This is the no-brainer of the text. Why? Because the text actually tells us who he is. In very clear terms. This one, presented with wisdom, power, and authority, is in the end found to be a counterfeit. He is a usurpatious deity. His wisdom is folly. His power is weakness. His authority is temporary. And it's limited, to say the least. He is marked out as, in verse 9, the great dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. There is no mistaking who this is. He is the arch nemesis of God and his people, the arch nemesis, the serpent from the very garden that came and spoke to Eve and led in the fall. So that one's easy. I think that one's easy anyway. Number two, the male child. Now, this is not real difficult, but it's a little more complicated. Notice what the text says. He's born of a woman. He is to rule all the nations with omnipotent power. He is born into this world, but he is quickly taken up by God. He is then seated with God on his throne in his reigning session. For lack of time, this is none other than Messiah, Jesus. Third, there is the woman who is in labor and travail. Notice what is said about her. She is clothed in splendor 
and glory is given to her. Her position is one of great and precious privilege. She is led into the wilderness and nourished and cared for by God during her exile. This of the three is surely the most complicated, but it's not that complicated. If we follow the narrative of the biblical drama, we might say she has been manifested at several points and times. Most near to the story of Christ, she is the one who gives him birth. She is a picture of Mary, given a privilege like no other woman has ever been. I was reading this past week in Luke, when Luke... Luke goes to visit. When Mary goes to visit Elizabeth and she is she is expecting and Mary comes to Elizabeth and remember she's now four or five months pregnant or so and John is inside of her womb. John who it is said would be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. It says that Mary arose when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, that is John, left in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary is in contrast to Zacharias, who doesn't believe and is silenced until John is born. But Mary believes as a humble servant of God. She is the one who gives birth to Christ. She is the one who has a privilege like no other woman. We might say where the Roman Catholic Church has made too much of Mary, the Protestant Church probably hasn't thought enough about the amazing privilege and blessing of being the mother of Christ born into this world. She is not, as the old Roman Catholic Church taught, Theotokos, the mother of God, but she is the mother of Jesus. And what an amazing position, what an amazing blessing that is to be given that privilege by God. It's quite an honor. But the text doesn't allow us to stop with just Mary, that handmaid, that servant of God. She is the one who gives birth to Christ. But there is another of old. There is Israel of old through whom from the Jews that the Messiah would come. And the text is filled with imagery of Israel who is delivered into the wilderness, who is provided for and protected by God during her time of exile in the world. But it's through her that the Messiah was to come. We were to go back into the dreams of Jacob. You remember Jacob having dreams about the sun, his father, and the moon, and the stars, his brothers. There's imagery here that is all from the Old Testament picture of the creation of the nation of Israel. But still, it's not far enough back in the biblical drama. We need to go all the way back, back to the garden. Because here is where we find Eve, under the curse. Remember our woman in Revelation chapter 12? She is in what? She is in great pain. She is in agony of giving birth. And God said to Eve, the curse you will bear is in great pain. You will bring forth children. 
but specifically in great pain she would travail to bring forth the seed that would one day crush the head of the serpent. I think the identity of these characters in the story is rather clear. I don't find a great bit of quandary with it. But what does it all mean? Let's speak not just of identification. Let's speak in the few moments we have of signification. What does it point to? This plot is the age-old drama of the Bible itself. This is one of the reasons it was so encouraging for me thinking about this coming Lord's Day and and, and making use of Genesis chapter 3, Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 and, and Exodus with the temple and the, and, the, and the cherubim and the veil and then, and then reading in Matthew 27 about the veil being torn and that, that, that openness of the presence of God. It's the age-old drama of the Bible itself. Here in six short verses, listen, in six short verses we are taken back to Eden, reintroduced to the first promise of the gospel story and the sure triumph of the Messiah, the promised seed over the enemy of God. We are told the plan of the enemy that is foiled at every turn. We are told of God, always one, if, if not in a million steps ahead. God's not just one step ahead of the devil. He's, he's, a, he's a countless gazillion. He's a Google Steps, whatever that is. He's, he's so far ahead, it's no contest. Why? Because he's planned the whole thing from beginning to the end. He has ordained all things whatsoever comes to pass, as our confession rightly states. He is protecting his child, placing him on his throne, nourishing his church in the wilderness of the world, as she, in her exodus, her exile, is marching now back to Zion, to the heavenly city. Isn't it obvious The application from such a story? Isn't it obvious the hope that ought to fill our hearts as we see the drama unfold? Here, here, friends, is the answer to the question, why? It is now made known. Our battle indeed is not against flesh and blood faces and schemes of men who seem to oppose us at every turn. But our battle is against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil, red dragons at every turn. It's interesting to me how, if, if you were to make a movie about stuff like that, it would be filled with people. Because people are fascinated by that kind of thing. But then we think it's what? It's not real. It's just fictitious. Reality is what I can taste and touch and knock on and feel. Reality is the person that's opposing me in the office. Reality is the sickness that's attacking my body. Reality is the plague of of, of difficulty in my marriage. Friends, there is a reality that is so far above that, that is driving the whole machine of the world. Our battle is against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil, red dragons at every turn. But we are to be encouraged. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties. Hear this. Casting all of your questions. Why? (laughs) Those are your anxieties. Aren't they? Aren't those the the, the worries and the fears and the troubles? They all come out like the why? Oh, you read this story and you read that story and you hear this event. You're like, oh, why? 
casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Remember the church in Revelation? The church is cast, the woman is cast out into the wilderness to a place prepared by God to be nourished. We are nourished in our exile. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, take fresh courage for the battle that you will face in these coming days. And if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do bless you. We thank you, Father, for this little snippet, this little picture of of this glorious, huge drama in the Bible. We pray, dear God, that you would help us to see what part we do play in it. And we are called to play a part of a patient, prayerful, waiting, anticipating church, longing for the day when her days in the wilderness are over and she'll be brought to her heavenly home, standing like these 144,000 around the throne of God singing new songs of worship in the fullness of their redemption. God, help us to be encouraged because this drama is not just a story. It is the way life plays out every day. And as we are plagued by questions why, as our hearts fill with many anxieties, let us cast our burdens on the Lord who cares for us. Oh, we pray, God, that you would help us to do that. Help us as we come to this table today. Help our hearts to be encouraged as we feed by faith upon Christ. May our souls be strengthened as we partake of this covenant meal. God, may we remember the great cost that you have expended on your own part, God, to establish this gracious covenant meal with us. You have slain your son. This one who, yes, was taken up into glory, but God, between his birth in this world and his being rescued in glory, he did live a death, live a life in which he suffered and won your favor for his people. God, we pray that uh, our hearts would be, again, just uh, wrapped up in the gospel and uh, encouraged as we eat of these elements here. We pray, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.